to Oh Baby, the laid-back podcast about pregnancy, birth, and motherhood. I'm your host, Alessia Plohe. This summer marks the 43rd anniversary of the birth of Louise Brown, the world's first IVF baby, born July 25, 1978, in England. The advent of in vitro fertilization was a major game changer for couples struggling with infertility and a massive leap forward for reproductive science. In the decades since, the science, technology, and research around fertility has advanced at an astronomical pace, almost faster than any other medical field. Today, IVF success rates are higher than ever. IVF twins are becoming a thing of the past, and the impossible is becoming more and more possible every day. One of the major actors behind the infertility industry's success story are clinics themselves, a few of which are investing their own money to study the most exciting developments in the field, conduct clinical trials on patients, and turn dreams of parenthood for couples with the worst prognosis into reality. The RMA Network, headquartered in New Jersey, is one such family of clinics. The group, which is part of an international network called EVRMA Global, invests more money than any other U.S. clinic into research, and much of the industry's practices are based off the science that the RMA Network has made possible thanks to years of meticulous study. Every day, the group's doctors, scientists, and fellows are pushing the envelope of fertility science to help people get pregnant through innovation most of us have never even heard of. Until today, my guest is the man overseeing all those exciting research projects for the RMA Network and EVRMA Global. He is the group's chief scientific officer, Dr. Emery Selly. In addition to his research work, Dr. Selly sees infertility patients in New Jersey and is a professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive sciences at Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. I should mention now that I used to work full-time for the RMA Network, and Emery is a friend, but that in no way diminishes the work he and his teams are doing to help infertile people conceive. Emery, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Tell, tell us, how did you get into this field? Why did you choose reproductive endocrinology uh, or infertility to, to spend the rest of your life as a profession? Well, to become a reproductive endocrinologist, you first have to decide to go to OBGYN. And my, <laughs> my entry to OBGYN was kind of very nerdy. I, I had an Excel sheet as I was finishing medical school about all the characteristic of subspecialties and specialties and 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 what the things I care about and OBGYN was at the top so that's why I got into it but after I finished as I was doing the OBGYN residency at Yale um, I was also able to uh, participate in some of the very exciting research that was uh, ongoing I saw the work of Aiden Origi who was working on reproductive immunology and endometriosis pathogenesis uh, and later on I was able to um, get into the lab of John Stites, who was doing molecular biology with implications on all site biology. And, um, and actually, when the time when I was able to watch all site being fertilized and make a movie on how a early embryo forms, it was kind of the um, decision maker for me. It is 
it is the most impressive event that you can see with your eyes and um, and I still am very excited about it. And how long ago was that? This was, I think, uh, when I decided it was around year 2000, so it was 20 years ago. I wonder who, who that embryo was, <laughs> the embryo that made you decide to go into this field, because that was a real person, right? <laughs> I, I guess so. I guess so. It, it was. It's some some of the embryos, of course, don't get uh, uh, transferred. So right. I, it's probably, uh, but likely it was a real person. Uh, another person that really impacted upon me was uh, John Hunt, who does impressive work on embryo development and environmental factors. And I remember going to a meeting um, uh, during my residency and seeing her uh, speak talk talk about oocyte development and how you know we need you know how we should behave and what how it can be hurt and how uh, oocytes and embryos may fail to develop yeah, so that was also an important point in decision making mm-hmm. and i i just want to mention for anyone listening who is not familiar with uh the terms of the industry emery's been saying the word oocyte that that is the word for an egg for a female egg okay i'll yes Thank you. I'll try to switch to egg from no one. Yeah. So what is what's the most exciting research uh, that's happening right now or, or the, the possibility of something that's happening, whether or not you're working on it? What, what is kind of the industry buzzing about right now? Well, I think, um, I mean, first of all, for, for your listeners, uh, a, our field has been, uh, you know, advancing at an unbelievable speed compared to many other fields. Uh, let's say compared to research in preterm birth, uh, the impact upon uh, female fertility that we were able to um, achieve using assisted reproduction is is hard to fathom. As you know, the first cycle was in 1978, first IVF baby, as you just said in the beginning, and it hasn't been that long. It's, It's been a little more than 40 years, and today, implantation rate in 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 cycles using normal euploid embryos you know embryos that have normal number of chromosomes is, is now almost 65 percent which is unbelievable so a lot of advances has happened and among them i think uh, some of them were based on genetics the other one were, were based on ivf laboratory others were based on endocrinology and now i think the the remaining frontier, one of the biggest remaining frontiers is how we can help women who are losing their fertility either um, too early uh, due to an accelerated aging of their ovaries or women who are just, uh, you know, at an older reproductive age in their mid-40s and they can no longer achieve a pregnancy. So how and if we can help them. Uh, Another probably interesting frontier is if we can develop uh, reproductive organs outside of the body using um, 3D printing or other methods of co-culturing or obtaining different types of cells from animal models um, to kind of generate a bed for an egg or a sperm to grow. Uh, Other remaining issues are whether or not we can use uh, induced pluripotent stem cell or some kind of stem cell to generate reproductively competent cells. Uh, a, another one could be how you can you just uh, 
potentially slow down aging itself, uh, either somatically, meaning non-reproductive cells, uh, together with reproductive cells, or, or just the reproductive cells, using certain medications that will slow the spending of it. So there's a lot of uh, really interesting things happening, and I think we're in, at a very nice uh, time uh, where we're trying a number of things, we're failing in a number of things, and we're hoping that we will actually and make breakthrough uh, discoveries. That sounds fascinating. Two of the, I think you just mentioned four or five things. I, um, two of them interested me a lot. The, the one of them is the very last one you mentioned. You said, how, how can we slow the aging of, of what, of, of eggs or? Yeah, I mean, uh, so Despite of all the money that is being spent on aging research, I'm not only talking about female reproductive aging. Overall, aging is, is, is a big field. Aging is very important because, as you know, you know people are living longer and longer. However, they're be becoming sicker. They're mental aging. There are many other different types of aging. So there's a lot of effort that's put into delaying overall aging. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that brings the question uh, of whether aging mechanisms are the same for our all of our body cells which we call somatic cells that are you know in your liver in your spleen in your arm uh, those are somatic organs uh, do they age the same way as the eggs age because and probably they're not it's very likely that eggs have a slightly different mechanism that's like they, they age faster you mean not only faster, but they use different pathways to age. Hmm, hmm. So, which then, which then becomes even more interesting in a sense that you could compare uh, your work in the oil side to someone else's work in in the liver or in the brain, and see how they overlap or they differ. Uh, we know that the most uh, damaging thing that happens in a woman who is, you know, getting older. In, their in her ovaries is that the eggs start making mistakes in as they decide on how many chromosomes to carry. If, if I can explain, I mean, every cell in your body has 46 chromosomes. However, the egg should have only 23, so that the 23 chromosome in the egg, when it comes together with the 23 chromosome in the sperm, it makes a normal you know, embryo. However, because of the long waiting period that the eggs undergo, they tend to bring not 23, but sometimes 22 or 24 chromosome, which then results in an embryo with abnormal chromosome number. Mm -hmm. That's how you would end up with Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. uh, Down syndrome has a name because those individuals can survive. There are many unnamed chromosomal abnormalities where you just lose the embryo embryo dies or it's miscarried so that is we know a, a major pathway the, the increased aneuploidy we call it aneuploidy abnormal normal chromosome it's a major pathway uh, that leads to decreased fertility in the aging female so um, uh, which is not necessarily the case in 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 your let's say your liver Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Two questions about that. The first is you said that the eggs uh, can make mistakes as they age. Uh, in particular, they bring too few or too many of their chromosomes to the mating process with the sperm cell to make the embryo. Why does that long wait cause that to happen? Do we know? 
I mean, if they start with 23, why not just pass on the 23, no matter how long they're so, waiting there? Well, it's a good question. The, the reason for that, I mean, uh, first of all, I'm not, uh, I mean, I can't 100% say that the long wait is causing, but it's associated with it, so it uh -huh. probably is causing it. And the reason for that is that they're not divided. So basically, a, while a female is herself a fetus, right, before she is born, her eggs start the division process from 46 trying to separate the 23 and the 20, but they get frozen in time. So when you have a 40-year-old female, she has all her eggs in her ovaries, and they are just about to complete that division which they started 40 years ago. And it's a long pro long waiting process. And probably they lose some proteins or something goes wrong along the, along the process because a 40-year-old female's eggs are much more likely to carry the wrong number of chromosomes compared to the eggs of a 25-year-old woman. By the way, I'm not saying uh, mistakes cannot come from sperm or cannot happen in the embryo once the embryo is formed, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm sure you'll be interested in about the mosaicism, etc. It's just that eggs are much more predominant in this process. They're, they are they seem to be more more important. And Emery, did you say that 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 the 40 year old woman her egg is just beginning to split at that time? Is that what you said? The well, well, or I, so I'm trying to understand. Yeah. So she's born. Okay. So a woman is born with around a million eggs. Yes. She loses a, a large number of them. By the time she yes. reaches the puberty, we don't know why. And after that, every month, her body selects a number of eggs to be released. Yes. So once those eggs are selected, Wh which is called uh, ovulation, right? That. So one yeah. of them ovulates every yeah, month, yes, right? Yes. Without the doctors interfering. Yes. That egg completes division once she's ovulating once the egg is ovulating so so when the, the egg, egg is moving from the ovary through the fallopian tube something is happening yeah. to that and egg just immediately before it it moves it completes cell first cell division and then it completes the second cell division after being fertilized so yes okay so a, an egg that is ovulated uh, let's say when someone is 25 years old it only compete completes division at that point it was just frozen in an about to divide state up until then but then if 10 years later when the same woman ovulates another egg that egg has waited 10 more years to complete the division mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. yes yes okay i understand um and so you're saying that 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 proteins and other type of important things are lost during that wait that could make that cell division problematic. That is the primary, you know, theory about how the extended period of time may be leading to uh, abnormalities in cell division. Okay. So you know, but I went off of the t a tangent uh, on a tangent because really the 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 point of what you were saying was that we want to take a look at how. Uh, eggs age, uh, egg cells age versus how liver cells age, and what is the what is the hope that we can understand better how different cells age because they age slower and then somehow inject those properties into the egg, so it it ages slower or there's no cell division problems. What would be the success here for this for this research? So there would be two 
main types of success. One would be once you identify a, a process as the primary process, like the abnormal number of chromosomes, then you can develop tests to exclude uh, the embryos that are abnormal, to exclude the eggs that are abnormal, which that is already being done. I, I know you're aware of that too. It's called pre-implantation genetic testing, and it's used worldwide, especially in women who are older than 38 or 35 years old. Uh, when they undergo IVF, we tend to test their embryos uh, to count the number of chromosomes and make sure that we're not transferring embryos that do not have the normal uh, number of chromosomes. In other words, we avoid transferring abnormals, abnormal embryos that have abnormal number of chromosomes. So that is that information is already being used mm -hmm. to enhance uh, fertility attempts. Yes. To to help fertility attempts. Yes. A, the other uh, pathway we're using is, is we're trying to see whether certain anti-aging strategies that are being developed in animal models, from the worm to the mouse to the frog, uh, can you use them to improve the uh, chromosome number status of human oocytes and embryos? I mean, we have conducted certain experiments recently in which were not successful, but I'm sure other people are trying. So that will be the kind of um, next stage. And so, Emery, the anti-aging strategies are trying to prevent whatever happens during that 10-year wait between a 30-year-old egg and a 40-year-old egg? That's the strategy? The, uh, well, you know, I mean, of course, that would be great if there was this chronic thing. Let's say there was a vitamin that you could take starting right. at age 30 until you're 40 so that your eggs remain mm -hmm. at the same, uh, I guess, age. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I was mentioning is more like there are certain pathways that are identified in animals to be associated with uh, aging. And there are certain uh, interventions, chemical interventions that reverse those processes. I and see. People have been trying, including us, whether we could just interfere at the last moment and reverse the project again what you are saying actually makes more sense like uh, what we are trying to do is unlikely to work because it will be like you know you go into an old house and you do just one thing and suddenly that becomes a new house that's unlikely right I mean uh, it will be more uh, theoretically it will be more likely to be effective if you take care of it chronically but right now, what we're drawing, we're, I guess we don't have enough time left in our careers. So we're trying to have a, like a quicker fix, if you will. So uh, chemical processes meaning what? Like you, how, how would this look? I mean, I know it's not happening now, but in theory, what potentially could this look like? Uh, well, uh, basically, the, let's say there are pathways, let's say mTOR, path, there's a pathway called mTOR pathway that's been implicated in, in aging in somatic cells and there and some people use rapamycin which which is also an infection you know anti-infectious agent to reverse that pathway and you could take immature eggs from older women and as they can initiate their cell division uh, and as they complete their division and they complete uh, ovulation uh, maturation uh, you could treat them with rapamycin and see whether or this helps them act more like younger eggs.
Uh, I'm just giving you an example. Yeah, no, that's very me. interesting. And so, what, would you take it as uh, a vitamin? Would you would it be injected into your ovaries? How would that? Uh... It could be. It could. There could be many different pathways. You could uh -huh. you could give it to the female. There are other. You know, there are certain medications that are given to women. You could inject into the ovaries, or you could remove the eggs from the ovaries and put them into a dish and treat them with the chemi chemical in the dish. Okay, okay, so now um, that makes sense. And now I'm also understanding the cell division. So what you're saying is that um, the period between um, essentially right after your period, so let's say that your period ends on day five and you ovulate on day 14 you're saying that the problem with the old eggs happens during cell division during that time between day five and day 14 when they mature and they and they divide is that right yes and okay mostly, mostly i didn't know on that the day 12 or 13 not okay not right before, before right before yeah interesting very cool okay so is this happening now are people trying to do this with um they, they with are. human Many eggs different people are trying but i mean again there is nothing uh as you know uh, we are quite cautious on making statements about yes. you know what if something works so uh -huh. what we do is we we try in a certain some we first try in animals then we try in some human beings then i mean some human eggs or embryos and then we would do what you call a randomized clinical trial, and only after that we'll, we'll make it available for our patients. So I, I can tell that there's nothing really right now that is proven to be effective, but there are a number of candidates that people are, people are testing, including us. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's very cool. Um, okay, and then the next one that you mentioned that sounded cool, did you say something like printing reproductive organs, or what did you say? Yeah, I mean, uh, the what, what people are trying to do is some people i mean it's kind of like a, a interface of engineering and reproductive medicine and people are trying to generate um, a manufactured uh, templates where you can put immature sperm or os uh, egg cells and then try to uh, mature them there that would allow let's say if someone had cancer and their their testes or ovaries were removed and then you could potentially um, grow them in, in or mature them in these templates in these organoids uh, that's another term that is used and uh, and this will also allow you to do a lot of experimental procedures so that this is another exciting um, line of research in my opinion now is that the same thing as growing immature eggs to be mature no it's different no, right that's that is easier i mean you you can immature eggs uh, when people say growing immature eggs they're just um so there is a <laughs> there's immature egg and there's immature egg. so there are we have immature eggs that are super super immature for those you probably need a more complex environment but an immature egg is just a few hours you know, away from being mature, that we can do it in a dish easily. We don't need a, we don't need a complicated um, mm. organoid for it. Gotcha. All right, let's talk about um, something that you told me about when I was still at RMA, which is um, using platelet-rich plasma, plasma uh, to, uh, I believe inject into women with diminished ovarian reserve or maybe not inject tell me explain what i'm talking about here so um so platelet-rich plasma is is obtained uh, 
from the patient, so it's called autologous, coming from the same person. And and basically you take the blood and centrifuge it to remove the red blood cells. And then the remaining uh, part con contains the plasma, which has all the proteins uh, without the cells, and also the platelets. And some activate those platelets, some does not. And this uh, solution, if you will, is injected uh, to activate growth and cell division. It's been used in orthopedics for to accelerate uh, healing uh, of certain joint injuries. It's been used in plastic surgery. Uh, and more recently, it has been applied uh, in the ovary and endometrium, actually. Uh, so we have collaborators around the world that came up with the idea that some women with diminished ovarian reserve who are having trouble getting enough eggs to, to have a successful IVF may benefit from having just a few more eggs um, in a given cycle, right? To, to just increase the odds. And, and, and platelet-rich plasma injection, in my opinion, aims to achieve that just to increase the number of eggs that will be obtained in a given cycle so that um, maybe you can find that golden egg, if you will. Now, uh, we have uh, analyzed the data, work with our colleagues overseas. Uh, it was started in Greece and then also in Turkey where, where they did pretty decent work. Uh, and now at RMA, we're doing a randomized clinical trial it's it's in it's midway so i wouldn't be able to really give some result uh, but uh, we we hope to finish within a year and and hopefully we will know whether or not this truly helps women make more eggs better eggs and does it help getting more normal embryos does it increase pregnancy rate live birth rate but it's it's probably uh, the most um, I guess promising candidate. Although I have to tell you, that there's been many promising candidates that didn't pan out. So mm -hmm. We'll see. And so, just to just to reiterate, reiterate, this would work by um, essentially taking a sample of a woman's blood. This woman has poor. Uh, outcomes with IVF. She has a condition called diminished ovarian reserve, which essentially means that her um, eggs are aging very fast, and she she it's hard for very hard for her to get pregnant. She has pretty severe infertility. So you would take blood from her arm, and then you would you would you say you would remove the red blood cells, and yeah, you, you would spin it, spin it, it. spin it. The the really dark red part will get out, uh -huh. and then you will take the rest and inject into her own ovaries. And inject into her ovaries, and then and then have her undergo another IVF cycle, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Actually, they could also try uh, conceiving uh, spontaneously if their other reproductive uh, parameters are normal. Right. Having said that, I'm not like I'm not really promoting this. I'm just saying this is an experimental procedure that we are investigating. Right. Right. <laughs> so right. To right. Clarify. No. Yeah. Disclaimers are important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, just just for my edification can you go back to the to the um did you say it was the organismoid or or organomoid or what was that organoid. again organoid tell me about that again I, I missed it i'm right that is different though that's yes uh, i know that's different and, okay the organoid is um there's a number of people who are i'm not one of them i'm like i'm i'm not a, a researcher in this field that are trying to develop a a 
artificial environments that could serve as a uh, efficient environment where you could mature and develop gametes or endometrium for that matter right uh, so they try this for a number of reasons they try this uh, to enable a development of eggs or sperms outside of the body and so what what would they start with you have to start with something right you, you would start with is well either either very early follicles or in you know in, or very immature sperm cells okay okay and you and you try to kind of grow those and replicate them yes you grow those and mature them to uh, in, in, and to bring them to a state where they would be, they could potentially be part of an embryo. You know, fertile, let's say an egg would then be able to be fertilized and then turn into an embryo, which then turn into a human being. That would be the ultimate aim. Right, right, right. Okay, and then uh, quickly going back to the platelet-rich plasma, wh- what is the healing mechanism behind this process? Why is it that that type of centrifuge, uh, removing the red blood cells and leaving the protein-rich, um, whatever else is left, why is that believed to um, have healing or rejuvenation, rejuvenating properties? More than rejuvenating, what it does is it's that kind of activates follicles. And if you think about it, actually, it, it, it does make sense because your blood is, is you know, our blood carries a lot, a lot of uh, molecules in it that would help heal. Let's say if you hurt your hand or if you have a cut, you will, you will form a clot and then the clot would be resolved and then the tissue would be regenerated. So all the chemicals and proteins and cytokines, immune cells and immune molecules that serve, you know, that work to make that happen, make that possible, are in your blood. So uh, theoretically, it, it is, blood contains a lot of, I mean, not theoretically, we know that blood contains a lot of molecules that promote cell uh, division and tissue growth. So that that's probably how it, it works if it works. I see. Okay. I wish you guys luck, and I'm excited to talk to you again in a year to find out what the results are of that study. Uh, me too. Me too. <laughs> and our fellows too, because some of them have that as a, as their uh, graduation project. So it has to be. It has to be that. Right, and it has to be successful. Fingers crossed. All right. What about Ascot? Well, what um, is that? As you know, we are a. Large group and a, a large part of this company is in Spain and outside of the United States, and and we have a number of research centers uh, that employs basic scientists, who are, you know, who are not necessarily clinicians but work with clinicians, and and so our current CEO, Doctor uh, and President Doctor uh, Tony Pelliser, and the lead investigator in this pro- project, Sonia Herais. Um, have developed a method called uh, autologous stem cell ovarian transplant and which is ASCOT for short ASCOT yeah ASCOT so what they did with ASCOT is that they uh, mobilized they gave um, GCSF I'm gonna give you strange terms but there's this thing called GCSF which stands for granulocyte colony stimulating factor it's just a molecule that uh, causes release of 
stem cells from the bone marrow. So gave, they gave that to women, mobilized these stem cells, collected them, and then injected them into the ovarian artery. And uh, Emery, if I could, if I could interrupt, um, yeah. can can you tell us why stem cells are so cool and why bone marrow stem cells, especially, are the coolest? Well, bone marrow drives stem cell. In in my opinion, they're kind of almost like the uh, godfather of the factors that you also find in PRP, right? They they have everything. They have every ability to. Uh, they have ability to transform into different types of cells and they have the ability to uh, to secrete molecules that uh, promote cell division and differentiation. Differentiation meaning, let's say, a more immature cell becoming more mature. Mm-hmm. So that's the idea behind using ASCOD. And and they, and Sonia Harris is, is, is truly... Uh, special researcher she's extremely serious uh, she wants to really be sure before she publishes anything uh, the same you know and working with tony pelliser they together first worked in the mouse they generated a mouse model of diminished over dor diminished over reserve and then out they, they you know they use chemotherapeutics almost like a mouse with a cancer getting medications which results in um, decreased number of eggs so then they showed ASCO to be uh, beneficial in that mouse model. Then they tried in certain human beings, uh, and it was the results were quite promising. And now uh, they are conducting a kind of a modified version of ASCO, um, a because they as they did these studies, they also learned right a number of new things. These are very very new ideas. So not all the small details that you hypothesize turn out to be true. And as you find out things, you kind of restructure your hypothesis, and that's what they did. And now they're doing a randomized clinical trial in Spain. Uh, and hope we will also, I mean, there's a huge interest uh, in Spain for this uh, study, and hopefully we will find a lot of... Um, and th- and that's not with mice, right? That's with women. No, that's with human patients who are randomized. This, the, the results of these uh, this study will be very important in I mean if it shows a benefit then I would uh, confidently suggest that our patients should use this yes and let's just uh, I think I interrupted you when you were actually saying exactly what it is so you, you said that this was taking uh, stem cells out of bone marrow and then um, treating them with a molecule and then what what happens after that well no like you mob- you treat the woman with a molecule GCSF okay which, which makes stem cells get out of the bone marrow got it okay so suddenly, do you inject her with something for a, for a little while her, uh, the woman's blood becomes you know has a, a lot more stem cells than usual i see and then you collect that blood and then you isolate those stem cells from the uh from the blood and then inject them uh, to the ovarian artery which then takes it to the ovary however i mean there are some details we don't necessarily we realize that we don't necessarily need to inject it into the ovarian artery which is very cumbersome you can just inject it to uh, to them into their I mean, you can just mobilize the cells, and it's just enough. So, uh, so it. I so think you don't have to. Easy. You don't have to inject the ovarian artery. You could just inject no. like the stomach or something. Well, no, you you actually just mobilization may be enough because it's in the blood. It goes oh. everywhere. So I it's see. much simpler than the current version is much simpler. So basically, just by injecting the molecule, that you kind of finish the job there. 
Yeah. Wow. And then uh, and and the and the idea is that these uh, stems, these bone marrow derived stem cells, rush over to the ovary and rejuvenate the eggs there. Uh, well, yes, and and we don't know if they primarily rush to the ovary or they just go everywhere but in the ovary this is what they do but yes that's the idea right you, you need like you know uh, a traffic cop to be there and be like hey cells over here over here to right, the ovary right. well actually there is some data from the endometrium research where, where they mobilize stem cells that if there's an injury in the endometrium if there's an injury in the uterus stem cells tend to go there you know more all right, let's talk about guys because I think guys don't get enough attention when it comes to infertility. Um, a lot of people don't realize that men um, account for male issues, account sperm issues account for the exact same number of infertility cases as women. Women and men share that um, diagnosis equally. So is there anything exciting happening with sperm research? Well, I mean, basically... There's a number of uh, avenues that are, that is exciting to me. Uh, some of the more easier ones are, are about selecting a group of sperms from the same man. Let's say let's say he makes 50 million sperm, but maybe selecting a few hundred thousand that are more that is more concentrated uh, with normal ones. So okay. uh, people are coming up with methods, either binding proteins or some kind of a dish or, or, or a gadget that allows trafficking the more, the more normal ones into one side and the less normal ones to the other side. So then you have concentrated normal, normal sperm. So that's one exciting uh, idea. I think... Uh, and how does it work right now, Emery? A man will get a selection of not very juicy pornography when he goes to the <laughs> clinic and he will ejaculate and then what happens with the andrologists there they how do they because i've heard of sperm washing for hiv and all that kind of stuff and uh, in general how do you separate today how, how is this uh what you just told me about this thing that's coming up how is that different than what happens now so what happens now is basically uh, they um this sperm is cleared from other ingredients of the ejaculate that are not necessarily useful it it, it also depends on why you're preparing the sperm one if it's from ivf versus insemination but either okay. way you would uh, separate the sperm from the unnecessary uh, ingredients uh, i mean unnecessary for assisted reproduction yes and then um right now and then you would generally spin uh, it in a certain, um, how to put it, in a gradient where, where they have to swim up against a more or less concentrated solution, I which see. kind of separates the better ones from the less. Okay, so you put them through a, a test. Okay. Yeah, a test, and then select the ones that seem to perform better. Okay. Uh, and then, of course, if you're doing IVF with ICSI, which is, ICSI is, you know, as you know, injection of the sperm into the egg. Yes. If you're doing ICSI, then the embryologist would visually select a moving, normal-looking sperm and inject into the egg. Uh, this this procedure would, um, uh, I don't know if it would add too much to the IVF itself, but for women who are doing insemination, uh, it would use a certain either dish or, or a tunnel 
where the um, certain markers on the walls would bind healthier sperm and keep them and get rid of the unhealthy sperm so that you can use the healthy sperm for uh, for fertility purposes. Hmm, hmm, interesting. And when you say healthy sperm versus unhealthy sperm, are we actually talking about cellular damage that could result so in like... cellular damage. I see. Uh, the, the, the thing is, um, a, any test, let's say you want to count the chromosome, right? I told you, yeah. you know, many, many of the mistakes come from the egg, but some come from the sperm. Uh, but... The issue is if you if you test a sperm and count the chromosome in a individual sperm, then that sperm dies. So you can. Oh. Do, but if you had a procedure, yeah, like for example, when we test an embryo, we take a piece of the embryo, but the embryo doesn't die. Otherwise, it would not be helpful to test the embryo. No, it would right? not. It stays alive. <laughs> but with the sperm, once you do things to the sperm, you may lose it. So the idea is to find a way of. Uh, you know, testing or binding the sperm using a procedure that concentrates better sperm. And and that is, and that would in general help with the outcomes of insemination cycles or fertility. Effects. Okay, understood. Understood. And a follow-up question is, um, is there a way to test the competency of eggs before you make an embryo and test that uh, embryo? But there, you can assess the chromosome number in the eggs. Really? Uh, you can because it, uh, because once it's the eggs is egg is ovulated, once we collect it in, during IVF, uh, what happens is that we uh, we can take like it, it would finish its first cell division, and uh, just before being fertilized, and when it finishes cell division, it's actually f interesting. The egg, when it doesn't divide into two equal cells, it becomes into the egg to be and a little side cell that will then be, you know, degenerated. That's called a polar body. So you could take that polar body and count the chromosome in that and and infer. This is before fertilization, Emery. Yes. Okay. You can do it before fertilization. Uh -huh. We don't do it that often because additional mistakes can happen during the second cell division that happens with fertilization. So we don't want to miss those. So it's just much more effective and efficient to to assess the embryo itself rather than the egg. But gotcha. yes, you could do tests to the egg. Interesting point. Because yeah, it but it has a surrogate. Like it's almost like right. a, a surrogate kind of side cell. Right, right, right. That is right. reflective of the other cell. Right. That no, that's interesting. But like you said, if you were to test it and it was totally normal, there could still be problems that develop during fertilization. So it would be moot. Okay. Um, now, what about AI, artificial intelligence, and embryos? Is is this is this exciting or not really? I think it's exciting. Uh, again, uh, EVRMA has been, EV especially has been extremely um, busy and productive in that field. Uh, our investigator Marcos Messeger, I think, is considered one of the um, leading experts in the world about it. Uh, I really think it it is likely to uh, result in a number of uh, useful parameters. And what is it? What is Marcos I mean, doing? AI is um, obviously AI is artificial intelligence, and what Marcos is doing is it is using a a microscope culture system where you can take intermittent um, pictures of a developing embryo and then assess their growth speed and characteristics and then collect this data and 
use some machine learning algorithms to see whether uh, you can identify specific parameters that are associated with better or worse outcomes. So you can just say, hey, such and such happened in this minute, and therefore I should not transfer this embryo because it didn't do that well. Whereas the other embryo did better, so that is the one I should transfer. So, so that's what they're trying to do. So is it kind of a replacement of PGTA, which you earlier mentioned is is ab- abnormal, is testing, uh, chromosome testing for embryos that helps us know if they're normal or abnormal? Is this kind of a replacement for that or totally different? Uh, it is It is not it is not likely to be a replacement anytime soon. Uh, they, so how should I say? The biggest reason why an embryo would fail to implant, to, to my knowledge, is aneuploidy, chromosome number abnormality. But still, even if you count the chromosome and you choose the good embryos, still one third of them do not implant. Right. So the biggest, biggest, uh, you know, success using AI and, and in uh, embryology would be maybe to gain a few more percentage points and try to identify which one of those you ployed, which one of the embryos with normal chromosome number is more likely to implant. I see. Very cool. And is this already happening in Spain? I, in the, in, term- yeah, in Spain, uh, yeah. And then there are other investigators, but yes. I mean, Marcos has identified a number of parameters. And, and also, what I'm also, it is possible that one day they could identify certain parameters associated with chromosome number abnormalities. But I, like, I'm right. not sure that they're yet there. But is this happening with patients already or not yet? Yes, it's being used. Oh, very cool. Okay. Okay. Awesome. All right. So we were just talking about PGTA, which um, I'm just going to repeat again. This is basically a test that uh, you, so, so a woman and a man will make embryos in IVF and um, uh, an embryologist will take a small biopsy of that embryo in order to test it and see, is this going to lead to a miscarriage or will this lead to a normal pregnancy? Because if it's got the normal number of chromosomes, it most likely will lead to a pregnancy and live birth. As Emery said, it's not perfect. It's only a 65% success rate, uh, but that's still very high and very good. Or if it's an abnormal embryo and it does not have the uh, normal amount of chromosomes, it will most likely lead to a miscarriage or it will not implant at all and there will be no pregnancy uh, in a small, Uh, chance there is a small chance that this could lead to a down syndrome baby or another type of abnormal syndrome baby that will be born um, and live or die immediately anyway this is what normal and abnormal embryos are and this is why they're very important to know are you transferring a normal or an abnormal so this is a test that helps you know is 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 that is is it important um is this a normal or an abnormal embryo so it's called pgta so that's some background anyway the question to emery is since I mentioned earlier that a biopsy is taken of the embryo, which by the way, RMA has proved that it's not harmful for the embryo. It doesn't um, impact implantation or pregnancy rates. So that's not really a controversy anymore, but it it is still invasive. It takes time. It takes like three weeks for this test to be done. Um, You know, it's a couple thousand dollars, et cetera. There is some research happening, and I think it's happening at RMA, about testing uh, these embryos without doing a biopsy and actually just checking whether the the fluid their culture fluid has some markers of abnormality emery is this is this going anywhere or is it promising or not really uh well (laughs) the jury is out Um, okay there's been some really uh, promising papers uh, uh, encouraging findings uh, from uh, certain groups 
and um, we have tested that in our hands in at, in New Jersey, and actually uh, we did not find it to be very reliable. Mm. And and the difference I think was for us is that uh, many of these papers were were um, use using embryos that were cultured longer than what we would like to, mm-hmm. or embryos that were frozen and thawed. Uh, all of these longer culture or freeze thaw processes may be associated with more release of more cells, but you don't want to do extra freeze thaws. You don't want to do extra hours or days of culture uh, unless it is it is the thing that the embryo needs. Like you don't want to do these unnecessarily just so you, so you can do a non-invasive PGTA testing. Uh, so. Mm-hmm. So in in our hands, when uh, although we did follow all the suggestions from from the people who were developing this test, uh, we did not find uh, it to be very predictive. Now there's another thing. Of course, the, there are people who generate these tests. They're they're selling these tests. They're making an income from these tests. So I'm I'm, I'm not one of them. So I don't I don't know the exact data behind what they are doing. But what is concerning to me is that uh, they may be, people who promote this may be accepting a um, accuracy for their test that is not necessarily the best for a woman looking for genetic testing of their embryos. You don't really wanna make big mistakes. I mean, mistakes happen in every test, but when you test genetics of an embryo, you wanna make as few mistakes as possible. So I think uh, it is, far from being ready and it could be that this will be overcome in the future with the advancement of technology it is also possible that it may never be overcome just because it could be just because the embryo does not shed that much dna uh, to be uh, diagnostic so we will find out i'm very interested in it we're we're still investing in this we're still trying to do research in it but as of now i don't think it's a reliable test but it exists and it's being sold yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I didn't realize that. Okay. All right. Let's move on to CRISPR. Um, CRISPR is um, very exciting. Uh, it's essentially, uh, you, I mean, you know more about this than me, but it's essentially a tool that allows you to cut parts of the genetic code, I believe, um, mm-hmm. in order to edit um, undesirable genes that could cause disease. Um, but but and so that's very cool and exciting and everybody agrees that it's you know uh the coolest thing since sliced bread however it's not um it's new it's new and so we don't yet know enough about what uh, impact cutting a snippet of the genetic code here has on a different snippet of the genetic code because um all of these genes interact together and so uh it's exciting but it's far uh from ready for prime time and there was a controversial case a couple years ago of a doctor in china who removed the hiv gene for two baby girls whose father had uh, hiv and um he got stripped of his life using crispr and um, they were born without that gene, I believe, but he was stripped of his license and I think maybe even jailed for a little bit of time um, because this was, you know, shocking to the scientific community that he did this because it was very dangerous and reckless. So what has happened since then? And um, what can you tell us about CRISPR? So, I mean, many of us have used different methods of gene editing in in our career not in humans uh, but uh, 
just just for your audience who, who may or may not be into into you know basic biology research but you know as you know we have thousands of genes or approximately 30,000 and when you want to really know the function of a gene one of the easiest things to do is to uh, get rid of that gene in, in an animal model so we have been doing this for years I, I personally have done probably eight or nine of those uh, where you um, use a this was before CRISPR uh, something called homologous recombination and you just basically destroy a gene in the mouse and see whether she becomes infertile and what kind of infertility she has and then you would conclude that this gene is useful for fertility mm-hmm. again I've, I've done this many times uh, but this the procedure that we use called homologous recombination is, is a little combin- uh, cumbersome and tiring and it takes a long time and it's expensive and uh, and uh, two investigate. I mean, a number of investigators were involved in this development. Two were actually uh, awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2020. Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Dudna. Uh, they they used uh, CRISPR Cas, which is uh, which is present in you know bacteria, archaea, etc. Uh, as a method, these these really uh, primitive organisms use CRISPR-Cas system to edit their own genome to get rid of the um, uh, infections they have. So they they basically channel this technology into a gene editing machinery that can be used in different settings. You can now use this in mouse again instead of the ones I, I, I'm more experienced with, the older methods. Um, but you can also use it to to edit a genome in an oocyte or in a one-cell human embryo. Uh, they're, it's very efficient. And basically, you need a guide which tells you where... Uh, so if you put the guide, it, it kind of goes to the area in the genome that you guide the machinery to. And then the enzyme, which is Cas9, um, it uses CRISPR sequence as a guide to recognize and cleave the specific strand of the DNA that is complementary to the CRISPR sequence. So anyway, uh, it can be used in, in the oocyte and embryo, and there were two interesting studies um, a few years ago that investigated this tool in the human oocyte uh, and embryo, and then of course came that those news from China. A, to clarify, Chinese authorities never sanctioned this. Uh, yes. the, that, that individual acted on his own mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and just wanted to create a human being that, that is resistance to HIV. Um, and he, he thinks he's accomplished it. Uh, there, we have done a number of research projects using CRISPR-Cas in human cells using the IRB. Uh, our concern with the wide application of this technology is simple. Uh, when you put the guide, you know, you guide your um, tar- your enzyme to a certain region in the in the genome. And let's say you have a you're you're gonna have a child with some abnormality, you wanna go there and f- and then get rid of that. By the way, you could do pre-implanted genetic testing instead, but let's say you don't want to do pre- pre-implantation genetic testing for some reason and, and you want to use CRISPR. 
I can understand the the dry, but our concern is that uh, the enzyme that will make the cut could potentially go to places outside of the guide. Like it could go to the guided area, but it could go to a number of additional areas, and you're you may end up having a baby with a number of uh, regions that are edited in in his or her genome, and you wouldn't know where, and and you wouldn't be able to diagnose this priority in planting this embryo because you just don't know enough cells to really deeply sequence the whole genome. So is the is the cleaver the problematic part, or is the guide the problematic part? What what part do we have to fix so that only the portion we want to be cut is cut? So the 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 thing that cuts the enzyme Cas9 is not the problem. It just cuts. Okay. It's the it's the efficiency of the guide that we're not sure of. I'm not okay. saying it's problematic. It's okay. Just, I'm just not sure how okay. specific it is. But if you if you think about biology, nothing is perfect, right? I mean, uh, no specific system is perfect. Everything makes mistakes. So would you risk making a mistake and maybe editing ten additional spots in your child's genome? Uh, I wouldn't personally, un unless someone can develop a really reliable um, confirmatory test that tells me, yes, I confirm only the area that you intended was edited and nothing else. Right. So right. until that happens, I don't. I don't really. I wouldn't feel comfortable using this technique mm -hmm. on, on my children, at least. Mm -hmm. I think they would be relieved to hear that. <laughs> I know. Uh, several years ago, you won a big award for work you did on the development of abnormal embryos, literally how abnormal embryos grow, what happens to them. I think it was day until day nine you watched the growth of these embryos, and that's mm -hmm. uh, very impressive. And currently, you know, I think most clinics in the world can only watch an embryo develop until day five or six. Uh, so day nine was a major success. Um, why did you do that work? Why is it important to know what happens to abnormal embryos? We don't, we don't really like abnormal embryos, right? So, um, you know, we don't want to implant them. So why did you focus on abnormal embryos? And what, what have you learned since that research? Well, a, that research was made possible by a collaboration, through a collaboration with really, really uh, prominent investigators in the field. Within our group, we had Tony Pellicer, Richard Scott, uh, I was involved, and there was Shin Tao, who's a geneticist in a, in a foundation, um, a Yiping Zan. In addition to that, we collaborated Magdalena Zanishka Goetz uh, and Marta Shahbazi from Cambridge University. Those are the they are the people who worked in the mouse and then in the human embryo, trying to set the um, protocols that allows them to grow until the end of the second week, which is what is allowed, what has been allowed. It may actually change. What has been allowed by the ethics committees in Europe and stem cell society in Europe and, and also the British government, where you know which is where Cambridge is. So uh, we wanted to work with them because we wanted to be able to ask questions that are basic, uh, scientific, but also clinically relevant. Now, as you said it, we're not going to implant, we're not hoping to implant these embryos that are abnormal. We are also not planning on growing human embryos for two weeks outside of the body before we transfer to our patients. However, 
being able to understand what goes wrong in the second week of certain embryos, we believe is helpful. And in addition, in addition, what we uh, are interested in uh, is certain additional questions such as, you know, mosaicism or segmental abnormalities. Uh, what happens to an abnormal cell in an embryo that has some abnormal and many normal cells. So all these things we thought would be very well served by developing this technology. And in, in that award was uh, for us looking at three specific abnormalities, including uh, trisomy 21, 18, 16, and see how they um, develop uh, in the second week of life. And it, it was a novel work. Uh, but I think it, this this technology and this approach can be exploited further uh, to learn more about human embryo development, and especially those embryos that are not completely normal, but not necessarily completely abnormal. Yeah, um, and and that's a great great segue because those embryos that are not completely normal or not completely abnormal are called mosaic embryos, and. Mosaicism, um, which is the existence of these embryos and the study of them, which is, uh, I should add, in its infancy. And that's why the work that you did was so vital, because you added a big piece of uh, a big piece to a puzzle that is still coming together. And, you know, not not many researchers know about mosaicism. But anyway, this is the study of uh, embryos that um, have both normal and abnormal cells, and this their controversial is mostly because um, there was a article written uh, several years ago. It was a cover story for New York Magazine, and it was essentially took the side that mosaic mosaic embryos are are good embryos and and normal embryos. But the the vast majority of uh, reproductive endocrinologists or fertility doctors around the world will not transfer a mosaic embryo. So earlier when we were talking about normal and abnormal embryos, those are kind of the green and red embryos the red embryos are the abnormal you don't want to transfer those they're bad the green ones are good good to transfer those um, healthy babies there's a middle ground right there's a middle ground between the red and the green and those are called mosaics and they're the question mark embryos are these good or bad and the reason that people think that they might be good is because actually uh, they have the ability to self-correct so even though they have these abnormal cells which would le lead you to believe that they are ultimately bad um, they can self-correct later in in the in the growth of this embryo so um, and and basically that's kind of the story on mosaicism and, and not many people there's only been, I don't know, I think less than 100 births of mosaic embryos. Um, so far, these babies seem normal, uh, I believe. But Emery, tell us more. What more, what new do we know about mosaicism? You know, should, if, if a woman only has one embryo and it's a mosaic embryo, what should she do? Well, it's a good question. First, a disclaimer. Uh, I really am, you know, some of the subjects have been discussed about I I couldn't you know those aren't my primary areas of interest mosaicism is not my necessary expertise of course I oversee a lot of the research I participate in uh, a lot of the research associated with it but I don't see myself a mosaicism expert uh, what I can tell you is that a first of all mosaicism how would that happen right mosaicism means that not all the cells in an embryo are abnormal and it would happen by the mistake happening after the beginning of the embryo, right? So if the if the if uh, cell division makes a mistake at the eight cell stage, 
you would have, I don't know, six normal cells and two abnormal cells. And then as they grow, uh, depending on the whether or not these uh, abnormal cells are able to divide or not, you would have a certain percentage of cells in that embryo that are normal and another percentage that is abnormal. Uh, so it is likely that, that what is being diagnosed using a pre-implanted genetic testing, it re reflects this, uh, reflects the fact that some embryos uh, have uh, a limited percentage of abnormal cells. Uh, it is also it could also be that it is a you know sl slight abnormality of the test i mean a problem with the test it is also possible in my opinion it's mm -hmm. could be a mathematical conclusion so either way uh i think uh, it is important to see what happened to the people who underwent uh, mosaic embryo transfer as as it was said in the paper you 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 mentioned we also had a recent study that I'm quite proud of. I think it's one of the most interesting studies in uh, pre-implantation genetics in the recent years. It was a non-selection trial. You know, you know this study. It's a trial where we did the PGTA on patients and then uh, we tested their embryos. I mean, uh, we they underwent embryo transfer without knowing the results so that embryos diagnosed as mosaic because you said you know as you mentioned many people would choose not to transfer mosaic embryos so because nobody knew the results doctors didn't know it the patients didn't know it they underwent all kind of transfer they underwent transfer of abnormal what you called red embryos or you, they underwent green normal embryos and they underwent mosaic embryo transfer and what we found is that the embryos that were mosaic had similar outcomes to those diagnosed as normal. So as a result of this, um, uh, we, we we do transfer mosaic embryos now and we actually- Really? Have, we do, yeah. We wow, do. that's uh, a big piece of news. I know, I know. Obviously they put a kind of a limit, uh, probably a statistical machine, you know, algorithm where if there's a great majority of cells that are abnormal, then it, reads as abnormal right but, right but if somebody has a test where it's a low mosaicism or or depending on the lab result mm -hmm. and by the way every lab has a different test and i think um the test that we use was quite accurate and uh, and in those cases we really don't seem uh, to find that mosaicism make a difference uh, there are certain other abnormalities that could be partial, partial, uh, but they they may impact. But you know that's that's a more complex story. But mosaicism is some. Right now we do transfer mosaic embryos. Right, and uh, Emery, there, there in that study, that non-selection study, there were probably not that many mosaic embryos that were transferred, right? But you guys figured, and that ultimately, I guess, went on to result in live birth. But y y whatever that sample size was, you guys figured was big enough to 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 change the policy uh that's a very good question it's the the number of um uh, samples was was not very high because of the fact that you know i told you the um we believe that this test is quite accurate and and we also seem to find that if your test is accurate actually the percent of embryos diagnosed with uh, as mosaic also decrease 
uh-huh. so in, in the less it's, it's rare. Test, in the older tests, I think we were getting a much higher uh, percent of mosaic diagrams. Okay. Now it's much less. Uh, but either way, uh, we we believe that we, although the sample, the number of samples diagnosed as mosaic was not high, the outcomes were so similar to normal ones, we, we decided to transfer them. And now, of course, because we've been doing this for a year now, now we have more data to analyze and hopefully we will be able to release that data soon. Yes. Oh, man, I'm, I'm so excited for all of this research. Very cool. All right. Well, let's go to our lightning round. All right. All right. My grandma would tell me when I was a little girl that I shouldn't sit on concrete cement, that inflammation from the cold or the heat, like a really hot bath, could affect my fertility and reproductive organs. Is this true or false? It's unlikely to be true. <laughs> I hate to I hate to oppose your grandma, but yeah. Not true. Okay. <laughs> Can healthy lifestyle reverse ovarian aging? Um, like uh, on a cellular level through epigenetics. I don't know if you've heard of this book. It's called The Telomere Effect. Uh, you probably have heard of it because these guys won the Nobel Prize. I think it's Blackburn, Catherine, Kathleen Blackburn, something like this. But it's essentially about telomeres. And these are on the ends of our chromosomes. And if they're short, it means that you could your your body is aging very fast and if they're long it means that your body is not aging that fast and you likely will not uh you know develop debilitating disease and you'll live longer and and what they say is that the the length of these telomeres is uh governed by the types of things you do in your life like uh having lots of friends and having strong social connections like eating healthy like exercising all this type of stuff so basically they're saying your behavior affects your genes and your and and the rate of cellular aging is this also true can this also be true for female eggs so in 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 mouse we i've done a number of studies where we induced unhealthy environment in the oocytes by destroying uh, mitochondrial pathways the pathways that are required for energy metabolism efficient energy metabolism and that caused uh, loss of eggs and that caused shortening of telomeres. Hmm. So an extremely unhealthy situation. An extremely unhealthy situation as that involves metabolism and diet could potentially accelerate telomere shortening, definitely in somatic cells and potentially in, in eggs. Uh, but I don't think there's yet uh, convincing data that healthy behavior itself can delay ovarian aging. Mm-hmm. I don't think we have convincing data on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say it's not possible, but the, uh, so is there a lot of data on it and it's just not conv- it's not in the favor of that or is there just not uh, enough data? There's not enough any kind of. I mean, okay. another, as you may know, I mean, I'm always very fascinated by the general aging studies. As you know, the most effective Anti, anti-aging intervention is basically calorie restriction. I mean, partial starvation is, is what delays aging in model organisms. We actually did a study here and we evaluated 1,000 couples with their uh, BMIs and fat content and s- looked at whether or not they were promoting, they were generating more eggs or less eggs or more euploids, more anoplys. We didn't see a difference between normal weight, uh, moderately obese, and people who were super thin. 
So that's our findings. Others may have different findings, but this, I was kind of surprised. I was really thinking that people who are, who have uh, extremely low body weight, not not that I'm saying you should have extremely low body weight. I, I personally... I'm going to put away the donut right now on my table. I'm just going to push it away. Yeah, so I'm, the I'm kidding. I don't eat donuts. As you know me, I'm, I'm the last person who can... Um, uh, who has the right to tell people <laughs> to do calorie but what why, why do you say, say that? that why you're in great shape you're not <laughs> you're not overweight and I you know what I remember when I was pregnant and I saw you in in close to the uh, lunchroom at RMA I was eating something it was a, a big plate of something and you had this tiny little um, like chickpea tomato onion something like this you said your wife made it for you it looked very nice but it was very small and I was like wow <laughs> Emery you know you're a tall guy are you is that enough for you well, I guess that's what I got that day. Norm, believe me, unfortunately, I make up for later on. During the oh, day. okay, I yes. see. So, but you're saying that the study that you guys did disproved this very well uh, evidenced phenomenon of partial starvation and, and telomere lengthening. Is that right? Well, it, we did not find any um, improved outcome in women who are super thin. Uh-huh. Uh, in the IVF, undergoing IVF. Uh-huh, uh, right. I'm not saying that maybe their brain is is you know aging slower i don't know right. that, but from an oocyte perspective they were making the same number of eggs as a normal weight woman or, yeah. or a woman who had a higher bmi well but Emery, again yeah this is uh, this is just one uh, set of evidence all, all, all we should know is that it's very complicated it's very, it's very, no, it's <laughs> that's really the name of the podcast <laughs> it's very complicated and and, and um, when i came to the Human, more human research in uh, in EBRMA uh, from a more animal model lab at Yale is that I saw that you know in the animal models when you do research when you knock out a gene or you, you starve them or you feed them a lot the effect is higher so it's called effect size in research you control everything else and then you make a major uh, change and so you see a result whereas in humans we just observe them right we don't we're not we're not doing too much to them, and and there's so much variability. Some smoke, some don't. Some walk, some run, and so there's so much variability. It's really difficult to see the difference. Right, so it's, it's but more complicated to prove in the human. But you know what? It does make sense based on what we what you said when we first started this conversation, which is that somatic cells, cells in the rest of our body, actually age at a different pace than. Uh, ovarian or uh, single cell eggs, and so. That makes sense, right? So it, it may be partial starvation keeps your liver young and your heart young and your, you know, uh, le- leg muscles young, but does not affect your eggs. Uh, exactly. exactly. Well, that's very depressing, Emery. That's very depressing. <laughs> so keep eating. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you mentioned this earlier. A woman is born with about 1 million eggs. By the time she starts her period, she's only got 500,000 left or 250,000 or something like this. Where do the rest go? I think you said you have no idea. Is that, well, is that right? Well, I don't, have, I don't know. I don't have an idea why, but they, they basically uh, disintegrate and go, you know, they die. Yeah, that uh, sucks. Is that yeah. every year that happens, or is it just like right before her first menstruation, they all no, no, it's, poof, uh, it's, disappear? Uh, it's actually many uh, of it, in, it happens in, we think it happens in waves, and it happens uh, throughout childhood. Wow. Uh, but we, I really, um, I don't think it's been really 
investigating details just because it's not easy to take, you know, you have to find cadavers, samples, etc. So there uh -huh. are all studies that are pretty good, but the, the overall attrition and the mechanism is, is unclear. Okay, this is kind of a joke question, but out of those 500,000, only about 500 ovulate and the rest are lost. So we have continued loss, which is called atresia throughout our reproductive lives as women. My question to you, why is the female system so inefficient? Well, um, because as we know, you guys are very lucky. You're constantly producing new sperm. But if you talk about efficiency uh, in, a, in the life of a male, like you may use two sperm, whereas you make a hundred million every other day. So I think efficiency is not necessarily a male thing either. But uh, I, the, um, the I really don't know why we need to bring uh, every month a female brings an, a, a lot of candidates and only one comes out. Right. We we don't think it is the best one. We we have done studies on that. Yeah. Actually, we recently published you. I'm, I think you're aware of that. We no, I'm not, but single, I, that's very interesting. Tell me about we that. Com I, we compared the natural cycle single oocyte to IVF cycles, and, and we actually brought patients through cycles. I mean, I was not a co-author in this paper, but it was Dr. Scott's paper, and Kathy Hong from RMA uh, was the first name. And they, and they looked at the aneuploidy rate, embryo development rate, et cetera, of a person who has a single egg, an unstimulated cycle, versus a woman who was undergoing IVF with stimulated cycles and they did not see a difference so uh, because this has been debated for a long time whether stimulation overrides the selective process that is inherent in the ovary and right. our finding seems to say that it's not and also more recently uh, elena labarta from um, valencia also did a similar study uh, and found similar findings so so i don't think it is the best one but somehow hormonally most uh, efficient one comes up and the others are lost and we don't know why yeah, that so so because I, I've had this question before. How, um, why does the body choose the egg that it chooses? Is it because it's a normal egg? Uh, obviously, we know that that's not true because miscarriages happen in the non-IVF population all the time. And the answer that I've gotten from from various REIs uh, has been that no one knows why the what causes this the dominant egg to be the dominant egg, but that the main theory the leading theory is the FSH receptors on that egg. Is is that right? Yeah, on the follicle. On the, on the follicle. Uh, on the home of that egg, yes. I agree with that. Uh, the hormonal environment of that egg uh, is better than the its competitors of the month. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, so, so what happens to a woman's eggs when she's pregnant or breastfeeding? Because she's not ovulating, right? Yeah, so what happens? She losing them. Yeah. Same so the sa the same way that she loses them when she's a little girl. X X. No, no. The same way that she's been losing when she was not pregnant. The same speed, except that she, when you're pregnant or breastfeeding, uh, the mechanisms that regulate ovulation do not happen. Uh, so so she doesn't even make one. She loses all of the candidates. Mm. Mm -hmm. Is it every month? Same thing. So there are some candidates that are that are chosen, and then all of them are lost. Or how does it work? Yes. Yeah, so in, in when when if somebody's pregnant, uh, uh, the there are certain uh, brain hormones that are necessary for ovulation. They 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 are suppressed. So or when you are when somebody's breastfeeding, that the same tends to happen. Not always, but 
most of the time and as a result uh, all the eggs that are trying to be the egg of the month they all die so none of them makes it but there but the same thing happens that like a group of eggs are recruited maybe 10 to 15 eggs are recruited and then no one none of them mature and then they all die or just like a batch yeah i I guess it's that way right same one same thing Mm -hmm. okay okay um all right you know one thing i've heard a lot is uh, when I used to work at, at RMA, I used to do stories about uh, patients and they would uh, oftentimes tell, I would say, how was your cycle? You know, they'd say, oh, great. I got pregnant. I had a baby. I'd say, oh, how many kids do you have? Oh, I have three or something. And they say, one of them was my miracle baby after IVF. And this happened a lot. They would tell me that they would get they would conceive naturally after years of fertility treatments and years of infertility and they always call them their miracle babies so is there any truth to uh this idea that ivf actually makes you more fertile by as as a result of the stimulation the medication that you inject yourself with (laughs) well um i mean the short answer is i don't know i have seen this happen in my practice it could be as kind of a selection bias in a sense that I uh, you know you remember you tend to remember those vividly so maybe maybe they don't happen that often but when you see them you you you, you really like them but yeah I have seen it in women who have um, diminished ovarian reserve sometimes I have seen people uh, who are pre-treated with estrogen and progesterone for fertility purposes uh, activating uh, spontaneous cycles not forever, but for a number of times. So that it could be a, it could be that the overall follicular machinery becomes triggered, and goes a few rounds before it stops again in those patients. But I really, you know, I know I know there are some theories about it, but really nothing nothing uh, that is proven. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a good thing to investigate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. In terms of ovulation, is it, it the when a woman ovulates, she ovulates one month out of her right ovary and the next month out of her left ovary and the month after that out of her right ovary? True or false? Is, is it, does it go from one side to the other or is one can one ovary be the dominant fo- uh, uh, ovary that's always uh, ovulating the egg? It's it does it does change, you know change between the two ovaries but uh, the same ovary can ovulate twice Mm -hmm. or three times back to back Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and do we know why that happens Uh, it could be that the uh, the inhibitory uh, so as as follicles grow the large follicle grows it it secretes inhibitory substances that not only act through the blood but they also act locally so it's very likely that the ovary where the the egg of the month grows has more inhibitory substance that may promote it from being the one for the next month. I don't know if that made sense. I think it made sense, but I didn't understand it. Uh, it, it, it <laughs> so basically, uh, basically, it inhibits the other guys, right? Like yeah, the other guys that are competing. So, yeah. Yeah. It's always a you know biology is always a balance. Like yeah. if you push, you pull kind of. Thing. Okay. So as the as the as the follicle the follicle yes the lead follicle grows yes it secretes certain hormones some of them you know, inhibits the, you know, by definition, you don't want all of the follicles to be activated at the same time. So no. when, it's, when one is growing, you're secreting inhibitory stuff. That and stops so the other guys from growing. Yeah, other, other follicles from coming. And Emery, and do, do, is that for both ovaries? Are both ovaries recruiting a dominant follicle during no, one cycle? One. No, Okay, so one. one cycle is, one ovary is deaf during during the cycle. Yes. Oh, okay, interesting. 
I mean, it has candidates, but they don't make it. So there's only one dominant cycle in a given cycle. That's why most women would not have twins on their own, right? They would have singletons because they only release one egg. Right. But both ovaries normally start bringing out candidates. Okay. But only one among all the candidates gets ovulated. Right. And only one baby is born. Right. And so you were saying the inhibiting hormones. Yeah. The inhibiting hormones would be more concentrated probably around the around the dominant follicle. Yes. So that may prevent uh, a follicle growing in that ovary for the next month. So uh, like... Oh, and that's why it would alternate. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But but the question is, why would it be the same ovary month after month if if there's the inhibiting? Oh, well, it, it if ovary could be big, the hormone uh, the inhibitor hormone levels could be low, uh, the follicle that is dominant may be less efficient. I don't know. It could be. Generally, they alternate, but not always. Okay, gotcha. Um, what is one thing that you hope to see in this field in your lifetime before before you quit this job? What's one thing you re- you just you, I really want to see that I hope that happens well, that would be so great. That, one thing that uh, differentiates me a little bit from my uh, colleagues at EVRMA and elsewhere is that I'm less of a uh, practicality oriented person. I I I would really want to know the true mechanism of ovarian aging. I mean, many of my friends may say, "Hey, well, I want to find the." Um, treatment of this or solution to that but I would be more interested in finding the mechanism if or someone else finding is equally good I just want to know it before I die <laughs> so what is it that causes ovarian aging that's what yes, you want the to mechanism find out? by which it happens the, like a, a really detailed undisputable understanding of the mechanism and do you think that's possible to happen yeah, yeah, in the next definitely yeah I mean I don't next 20 years definitely yeah 20, 30 years, hopefully sooner. We've talked a lot about science today, um, but a lot of the reason that you do this work and your colleagues do this work is so that people can have babies and women can have babies and become mothers and fathers can become fathers. So what is the most incredible patients and, and, and the, and the work that you do helps them become that. And it's amazing. So, uh, and oftentimes there are stories that are incredible and that you don't believe, you know, so what, do you have any of those patient stories to tell that, that you just like, you, you can't forget this one patient, you know, should beat the odds or something like this? Well, um, I mean, one one of the interesting ones for me is is uh, one of my patients who had a certain syndrome. I don't I don't want to say the syndrome because it may reveal who she is. It's like, uh, but it was a complicated syndrome that caused uh, vascular abnormalities in her body uh, that made her both likely to make clots, but because she was using her platelets, she was also very prone to bleeding and. Um, and she really wants to have a baby uh, because you know she has a, she ha- she probably has a longevity you know she would live as long as we would and she was completely normal otherwise uh, but some of her limbs were affected and she really wanted to be a mother and she came to us and it was um, it was challenging and slightly you know more than slightly dangerous so we worked with a lot of hematologists and came up with a protocol where we would just uh, optimize her um, clotting situation and she actually had two babies with us and we really brought it down to 
to a science on how to manage her feeling. It was a trial and error. We had we had some issues, but we did learn at the end. And later on, I a few years later, I received a, a message from her saying that she did have a um, an accident uh, which led to a bleeding of her uh, limbs, and then they actually used the same. They 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 had learned from her prior treatments with us, and it although she did lose one of her limbs, it was uh, it helped her actually survive. And, and she has a really beautiful family, three children, happy family right now. So I, I always remember that. I mean, we, we re I really never see us as super important as doctors. We're, we're more assist people more than anything else. So it's, it's always the patients who, who achieve it. But sometimes a, medically they're very complicated and you just have to you know, go the extra step to, to make it happen. That's Dr. Emery Selly, Chief Scientific Officer at EVRMA Global and Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Yale School of Medicine in New Haven. You can visit www.ivirmainnovation.com. That's ivirmainnovation.com to find out more about Emery's work. Emery, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Oh Baby, the laid-back podcast about pregnancy, birth, and motherhood. See you next time.